0: Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is Shannon Fisher. We've got a really fun show today, a glimpse into a subculture that most people never get to see. Uh, My guest is journalist, educator, and historian Scott Satterwhite, who was a resident of the 309 Punk House in Pensacola, Florida, for nine years. And he has written, co-written a book called A Punk House in the Deep South, the Oral History of 309, Telling Stories About the Punk House. Scott, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for coming. This is this was a really interesting read. Um, I, I think unless you've ever been in the punk scene, you don't really know what the punk subculture entails. And I think a lot of people have kind of misconceptions about what punk means. I mean, they think about Sid Vicious in the 70s. So what does punk mean to you?
1: Uh, when my co-author Aaron and I were about ready to go on tour we had a number of practices uh, practice sessions uh, with mm-hmm. all the possible questions that we would be asked and this was the top <laughs> of the questions there <laughs> sure would be asked but interestingly hardly ever did uh, so I, I, I can't remember my canned response so I'll just have to go for my heart <laughs> uh, good. yeah my uh, I would I guess my response would be in the broadest sense that punk means freedom, uh, that it means freedom to be who you are in a world that often doesn't let you be who you are, uh, that allows you to uh, to walk in your own shoes or, or go barefoot if you need to, uh, but just to be able to, to be who you are, it gives you that freedom. And in its most ideal uh, sense, it not only gives you the freedom to be who you are, but uh, but is, but it also allows you to be a part of a really supportive community of people that are also uh, people that are trying to be who they are, however they see themselves at that moment.
0: Sure. And 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 in the book, one thing that the residents brought up time and time again was that sense of community and that sense of all being in this together and helping each other out and supporting one another. There seemed to be a lot of artistic pursuits uh, in in the people that were living there. So did this environment foster creativity?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a number of the things that people did in the house were uh, among the standard pair that people would expect were uh, uh, bands, zines and uh, bands, uh, fanzines, uh, artistic creations and, uh, and that certainly rubbed off on each other. You know, if somebody's learning how to play guitar and then they start playing guitar, they start playing a lot, and you start hearing them play guitar, then often one or two things start to happen. Uh, that you pick up a guitar and you start playing yourself maybe somebody teaches you how to play or somebody else knows how to play drums or figures they can learn and then they try to and a lot of our bands and they came from the house started in similar ways like that Uh, the artistic part was the same Uh, I know I had a number of roommates who had painted and usually painted on weird surfaces, uh, maybe different surfaces, they would sometimes use canvas, but they didn't necessarily go out of their way to get canvas, they would find cardboard on the side of the street and would paint on that or paint on wood and then uh, paint on random pieces of uh, metal, sometimes glass, and while it might look folk art you know, the the reason was uh, that they would do this out of necessity, but, one, but by doing that, you see somebody else create some really beautiful art out of, uh, just from wood or from, random scraps that they found or collage pieces, then you realize, oh, I could do that, too. And then you start building your own pieces, start painting your own works and different art on random things. Uh, I would say probably the biggest influence as far as artistic creations from people was in the writing, though. Uh, that We had so many writers that came out of that house and so many people that wrote constantly in there. Uh, and what, how you benefit from that and how you benefit from any artistic community is when you see other people doing it and then you get the encouragement from other people, then people show you some of the tricks. You start learning things that uh, from other people about what they did that worked well, what didn't. And sometimes you try and replicate it, sometimes you go off in your own direction, you see something somebody else did, you want to do something totally different, but maybe it's inspired in a positive way or a negative way, Uh, but you create your own works. And the number of writers that came out of that house uh, is really astounding. People you know of, Aaron, of course, uh, he's certainly the most famous of all of us, and he didn't learn it over in 309, but his presence over there surely allowed for a lot of other people to look at writing, but not just him. Uh, One of the painters, uh, the first chapter in the book, Scott Calgill, uh, who does a lot of other things. Uh, He was also a writer and was a very prolific scene writer and wrote his fanzine maybe about 15 years. He had maybe around 70 issues of the zine, but seeing him write and putting together his work and literally putting it together where you're writing it by hand, you're sometimes typing it, you're. Laying, doing the layout in the house, you're cutting and p- paste and then you ride up to the Kinkos, uh, maybe on your bike or maybe in his, uh, in his reacquired—I'm trying to think of the word for it—but anyway, he had a taxi cab <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> uh, that we'd ride up to Kinkos and sometimes, and we would make copies uh, from there. So being able to see the, the means of production in your hands in all aspects, whether it be music or or paintings or uh, literary creations, was incredibly inspiring.
0: Sure, and and I think a lot of people might not know what fanzines are. So explain to the audience a little bit, what is a fanzine and how does that fit into the punk subculture?
1: Fanzines, as the name implies, are uh, derived from magazines that are written by fans. Uh, people look at the, they trace the origins of fanzines in a number of different ways. Uh, some go back to the political pamphlets of the 1700s, uh, like Thomas Paine's Common Sense, Uh, I don't necessarily buy that, but that's one of the ways people see them. Uh, Other probably closer to the real origins would have been in science fiction magazines in the 1930s and 40s. But where it really blossomed in punk was uh, that you have a a group of people that are largely being ignored by the by the mainstream. Or if they're being or if they're being followed, it's usually as a. as a curiosity or an oddity, like looking at their sartorial choices or their uh, their haircuts or, you know, piercings, sure. those kind of things, yeah. kind of making fun of it. Uh, so what fanzines allowed punks to do, uh, fanzines are uh, small magazines, homemade magazines, uh, written by fans of a certain genre. And in this instance, punk in the short term is zine. You know, so it's spelled Z-I-N-A mm-hmm. like zine, but zine mm-hmm. is how it's pronounced like magazine or fanzine, and why it blossomed in punk was because so many people ignored it, and uh, like many other cultures, uh, punks wanted to uh, wanted to create their own media and also wanted to be taken seriously, and since the mainstream wasn't really taking punk seriously or didn't understand it, then they created the medium themselves because they knew how to do it, and, it, and they represent uh, an incredible immediacy that you don't see in any other publications that would uh, that would fit this immediacy, almost to the point where when you read some of these publications, even the early fanzines in the 1970s, uh, you read some of those, it feels like you're right there in the in the setting, in the show, uh, you're looking at the bands. And then they evolved from, uh, from, from just being focused on music, largely being focused on music, to many, many different ways to where now uh, you can see f- uh, fanzines being written by people that aren't even really in the punk scene or wouldn't consider themselves punks, but would, Uh, But are the inheritors of that of that genre so small magazines would be uh, a way to look at it homemade magazines cut and paste with literal scissors and and glue often uh, usually done by one or two people but sometimes could be more group collaborative projects.
0: That's great. And so that would really get the word out and kind of be able to pull more people into the scene and to to learn about the the music that you guys were doing. And so you right. talk about kind of being on the, the outskirts of society, having them look at you suspiciously. But this house, uh, you guys actually have made some really great contributions to the local Pensacola community and have been honored for that. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah. So besides all the uh, the things that you would expect to come out of a punk house, such as the zines and art and the music, we had a lot of other things that came out of there that are a little atypical for a punk house. I mean, you know, when you read the book, <laughs> uh, one of the things you'll notice is that there's an absence of music in the book. There really isn't a ton of music in the book itself. But what comes up probably a lot more are uh, people's uh eating habits, (laughs) you know, what they eat, how they ate, uh, not only vegan food, but when they got together uh, having meals and shared uh, shared dinners and potlucks, et cetera. And yeah, that came out of a necessity as well because a lot of people were learning how, or we're not only becoming vegans and vegetarians around the same time, but uh, there weren't a lot of vegan restaurants, especially anywhere in the country, really, especially in Pensacola, in the deep South. So what we had to do is basically create them ourselves. So we did it in our house. Uh, and how we created them in our house was everybody's learning how to cook. And then one day somebody comes up with this interesting idea is like, hey, what if we just made a bunch of food and we invited our friends over and we had this little fake restaurant in the house. So they did that. And then eventually it grew into this bigger thing where I just put up a flyer saying, spare change cafe, come over and donate whatever you want. And we'll get, and we'll feed you. And, uh, and while it sounds like a soup kitchen, it was a, uh, a big three-course meal included with the maitre d' in there, which is always kind of funny. And train hoppers would literally jump off the train, find out about it, and then drop by the house. And then they're greeted by the Matri d' of the house. <laughs> uh, it was the same guy who drove the taxi. uh was a bit of a showman himself, Scott Cowgill, And uh, he would uh, take whatever pocket change they had, uh, and then they'd feed them to a full course meal and somebody else who lives in the neighborhood had more money to spare would spend 10 bucks on there. And uh, so we're learning how to cook vegan food together. And as we're learning how to cook this food together, then that grew from the spare change cafe, uh, to a, another version of it in this, uh, in this little collective house that didn't really last long, but it was around. Uh, and then it grew into food, not bombs, which is a, uh, project that sends or gives, uh, food to homeless folks in, in town, those without houses, and uh, and from there, you know, it eventually turned into a uh, into a vegan restaurant. We happened to be, a lot of us happened to be working at this one place, it was a coffee shop called Van Gogh's, and uh, the owners were looking to sell the coffee shop and they couldn't find buyers to, uh, anyone to buy it, so they offered it to the workers, who included myself and a few other people, and we... Pulled our resources. We got enough money to do the down payment for the business, and then we end up starting a vegan restaurant in the in this in this place that used to be a coffee shop. And. Yeah. With that, you know, it grew uh, into, it now it's celebrating its 20th year and it's uh, an incredible spot. People love it and even without knowing any of the history of it, but knowing that it came out of our house, you know, it's interesting. And it's it's just across the street from 3 and I too, it's uh, literally around the block. But besides that, uh, besides the vegan restaurant, uh, a couple tattoo parlors came out of the house too, Hula Moon, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary as well. Uh, and uh, then we had a number of venues that came out of there too, but also we have some Uh, We have at least four bookstores, maybe more, uh, have some roots over in 309, and one of them is one that uh, I'm also associated with. uh, It's a place called Open Books, and we have a prison book project that runs out of there, and that was the impetus for the project itself, uh, the Open Books Prison Book Project, where we send books to people in prison. And what we think is really interesting and uh, ties back into your question is how uh, 20 plus years ago the city council and the neighborhood association at different times was trying to get us kicked out of uh, the house and was trying to push us out of the cafe and in other instances people tried to uh, shut or people had a lot of complaints about the prison book project about whether we were going to be prisoners into the neighborhood or how that was going to work and Know, how it's going to work as a whole and uh and fast forward 20 years in the same city council that it, uh same city council and mayors different people uh but city council and uh, the mayor of pensacola gives pre declared january 16th open books prison book project day i gave the from the city for our hard work uh and yeah, it just shows us that Like with the cafe, like with the tattoo parlors, like with the venues and like with 309 itself, that if you are persistent and stick around uh, and you just keep doing it, you don't move to. Portland or don't move to New York City or don't move to some of the other places that already have enough of us around. <laughs> they don't need another vegan restaurant. Uh, stick around with these small places and you can really, really make an impact. And in all those instances, whether the tattoo parlors, the restaurants, uh, or the bookstores, that we've certainly made incredible influences. And with the Prison Book Project, we send 10,000 books every year to people in prison. And uh, all of that started in in uh, Scott Cowgill's old bedroom in the house, my old bedroom in the house. Oh,
0: that's uh, wonderful.
1: Yeah, so all of that started from there.
0: Well, and you had something much more personal come out of that house. Your daughter was born there. So yeah. <laughs> you have a really strong connection um, to it. And you, in fact, have spearheaded the effort to purchase and restore this punk house. So tell me about that personal connection and what has inspired you to to take this on.
1: Yeah, so, well, yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, I do have a very personal connection <laughs> to the house. Uh, yeah, my daughter uh, spent her first night alive over there, uh, and she lived there for her first two years. Uh, she's now 16 years old, just started working over at the Waffle House. <laughs> really proud of okay. her because uh, that's the, uh, probably one of the punkest jobs you can get. Uh, yeah, she was, uh, she lived there for her first two years, and uh, and it was really nice to be able to have her over there. And I know a lot of people might think that it's really wild to have your daughter live in a punk house, uh, but it wasn't really as wild as people make it out to be. We were mostly, you know, family, a chosen family that were living together. In this instance, we had our real family, my uh, my partner, uh, later my wife and the uh, and our daughter. Uh, over there. So we had that part of the family, but everybody else in the house was also considered family—godfathers, uh, godmothers. Yeah. So we still had those, and we still have those same connections with them. We had those personal connections to the house, and so many other people in uh, in our community had those had very personal connections to the house. When I lived there during my time, at one point, I tried to do a, a a family tree to see who had lived in the house just in the period that I lived there, and I counted around 75. Uh, oh, wow at different times, of course, not all at the same time. Right. Uh, around 75 people living at the house when I lived there. And there are several people that lived there before me, and then there are uh, dozens of people that lived there after me, after we moved out. So if you think of that, that there's uh, well over 100 people that lived in that house, and they had very close connections to the house. Not all of them were positive, but uh, many people had really positive memories of the house. And with that in mind, when it looked like the house was gonna get Sold and torn down. There was a big community push to get the house to save the house, and we tried a number of different efforts to save it. And uh, it was really difficult to raise that kind of money, and people were skeptical of the idea too. Which we get in the book. We wanted to make sure that people were clear that this wasn't a universal uh, feeling that everybody had. that A lot of people said like, "Just let it burn. Just let it go. You don't need to save (laughs) it." No, and punk isn't about saving memories and we shouldn't do this live in the future not the past uh, but we but so many of us really wanted this house to be there so uh, so with that in mind yeah we spearheaded the effort to save the house and and you know through a lot of effort a lot of personal effort to you know a lot of personal investment into the wow. house the community investment as well in many many different ways they were successful uh to to probably everybody's surprise if you had told me in uh in 1999 when i first stepped into the house that uh that fast forward into the future uh to the year 2021 and i'd be talking with you on a podcast about how we not only saved the house but now own the house i would be shocked i <laughs> be believe but yeah yeah it's a it's a wild story it's a wild history but you didn't stick around long enough you you keep doing it and then Hopefully it works out.
0: (laughs) And it's a subculture. I mean, that that really needs it does need preserving because, I mean, as society changes, the way people live, change the way people interact with one another, the way people share information changes. And Mm -hmm. so the, the, the period in time of time during which this was such a thriving, active punk house might never be able to be recreated in the future as it was. Then, so what kinds of things are you are you preserving for posterity?
1: Well, one of the things that I like to think of when I look at the house and what our mission is, uh, this is how I view it. I view what we're doing is we're trying to protect the past, uh, but trying to also project into the future. Mm-hmm. So by looking at this, we wanted to make sure that our very rich DIY subculture here in Pensacola was preserved. And we have the, obviously, punk is in the title of the Three and i Punk Project, and it's the punk house, you know, as the book uh, describes the whole history of the house, but we also have our DNA connected in many other different ways to previous subcultures. The 60s, the, they had a, there's a group of people who, late 60s, early 70s, who had a very similar house to us, who, were, incidentally, were in our neighborhood. They created a newspaper called the Gulf Coast Fish Cheer, and turns out they were in our uh, in our orbits, when we were sending books to prisoners, we we were often made fun of by the by the mail carriers as we we're bringing in, bringing in the books. Saying, ah, books to crooks, huh? You know, kind <laughs> uh, of make fun of that or look down their noses sometimes at different post offices. But there was one person in particular who looked fondly upon us, and turns out she was the editor of this paper over there. And I think what she recognized with us was that she was the uh, the, she saw her people uh, in us. Her, her name is Magic Pat. <laughs> so if you're out there, Magic Pat. Uh, we love you. Uh, but she got in touch. with uh, I was able to track her down, get in touch with her. And then that turned into my thesis when I worked on my master's in history uh, was a look at uh, their history. And I wanted to preserve that because I saw my connection, uh, in my history with with what they did and me and aaron yeah the, my co-author in the book we used to go over to the crispy cream right around the corner and we'd get a donut a cup of coffee and then sit on the front porch of the headquarters of the fish cheer and marvel at what could have been in the past and uh, it, but see our roots and that stuff but also too if you want to connect it further with not only our culture our punk culture in there that one of the things we didn't necessarily want to do was just have it be so reflective of us that it turns into a lot of navel-gazing. Because to be honest, if you look at Pensacola punk history, it's cool to us, you know, but it might not be cool to anybody else. And it might seem like we're, just looking at ourselves, are overinflating the importance of the Pensacola punk scene. But way we saw it, and I think the way most punks in Pensacola see it, is that what we did was important. But there's also a number of other scenes uh, throughout the South and throughout the uh, smaller countercultures, and definitely throughout Florida, they get ignored. Uh, and this is one of the ways that we can preserve not only our counterculture, but then also how our counterculture connects with others, because in the book, as you read, uh, there's a number of instances where the Ku Klux Klan comes in, which is atypical for punk houses and punk scenes and punk stories, uh, where the Klan comes in and people are protesting the Klan uh, and You know, and the same group of people that were also protesting the Klan were the different civil rights organizations that a lot of us were members of or parts of or affiliated with. So our connections with those groups were similar because we were doing the activist stuff. And then you think of the vegan restaurant. When we started that, it it was partially for health reasons, but... Uh, but people would make fun of us because a lot of us smoked and drank and said, oh, they're smokers and drinkers now. They're pushing the vegan food on us. Uh, but the rationale is that we were more into animal rights uh, than into uh, any, any other aspect of it. So we saw that as another form of activism too. And a lot of us out protesting the war. So we're out there with some of the 60s, or not 60s groups, but some of the people that had anti-war groups from the 60s and 70s and uh, affiliated people who, uh, we're protesting those that were in those same groups so we we had our tentacles in a lot of other groups and they had their tentacles in us as well. so we see us protecting those histories as is connected and yeah and part of the same histories and stories
0: sure well, and I think that's great because as an historian uh, th- that is your job to to preserve uh, that which, it needs to be told. So you guys are um, gonna be at the Miami Book Fair. You guys are are hooked up with them and kind of presenting through there. So tell me about your connection there.
1: Uh, well, with Miami Book Fair, that was set up through our publisher, the University Press of Florida, uh, who we really can't give enough uh, praise to. When Aaron and I were first initially looking to do this book, uh, my initial thoughts were were that we were gonna self-publish this because Aaron's been doing his fanzine, Comic Bus, since 1981. And that's what I thought we would do initially. Is we do our book as an issue of Comet Bus. But Aaron thought it'd be a good idea if we ventured out, and which is interesting to think of because Aaron hasn't been to college, and I teach in a college, uh, and uh, and <laughs> just to think about you know moving into the academic press it's funny that he was the one to say let's let's shoot for a different angle instead of self-publishing let's see if we can get somebody else to do it let's try an academic route because i think we can do this because remember that we collected these stories and these are interviews with students or right. student interviews you know so students were the ones who did this so the whole project started in the classroom and we thought it's fitting that this be on uh, a university press for that reason alone so with yeah. that in mind uh, that we have nothing but praise for the University of Press of Florida and their their work with us and how well they've how well this is translated and their ability to get this book at a reasonably cheap price for academic books. 20 bucks. If you've ever been to college, you know that that's that's like a dollar book.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Yes.
1: So we were able to get them uh, to get it cheap. But that's how we got our affiliation through the Miami Book Fair is through some uh, great folks over there, Lisa Paley and uh, other people that have helped us uh, to get into the book fair and then also get us connected with great people like you, Shannon.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone, everyone that I've ever worked with or met through the Miami Book Fair is, uh, ha- has been wonderful. I mean, it's just, you know, the biggest gathering of of authors in uh, the country, I think. Um, so anyone who wants to connect with Aaron or Scott can do so through the Miami Book Fair. You can go to Miami Book Fair online. You can down the, the schedules. Um, and is there anything that you want to kind of leave as a last thought about the 309 Punk House?
1: Well, about the theory and I'm punk cast? I'll say that one of the things that people have told us after they read the book is that they see themselves in the book, whether they're punks or not, uh, because what I don't want people to do is just to think of it as a book about punks, because if it is, it narrows our story. And I, anybody who's lived in some kind of communal setting or just been curious about it too, or interested in alternative lifestyles, if you will, that I think that they would get something out of the story, too. How do people live together? And when we think of family, how do we determine what is the definition of family? Because that's one of the big things that we did with this book was we worked with the definition of family, uh, chosen family in many instances, and tried to figure out how do these misfits uh, fit in and where do they find their people? And I think we were all incredibly fortunate to have find, found the people that we found.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Scott Satterwhite, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Thank you to I, your audience for listening.
0: For the authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. I'll see you next time.